Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and my guest today is a Pulitzer Prize nominated writer. He's the author of multiple best-selling books and he's one of the world's leading experts in flow. Stephen Kotler founded the Flow Research Collective in 2019 and has written category-defining books like The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire and The Art of Impossible. His most recent work is fiction, a thriller set in the near future called The Devil's Dictionary. And we had a fascinating conversation exploring Stephen's 20-year career as a journalist, writing for over 70 of the world's leading publications and becoming a New York Times best-selling author. We also discussed the latest of the books he's written with Singularity University and X-Prize founder Peter Diamandis. Also, why Stephen uses fiction to explore solutions to some of the world's biggest problems and what the latest in flow research can teach us about reaching our potential. Finally, we discuss why Stephen regards creativity as a core value and why we should all do the same. If you enjoy listening, check out the Future Work Life newsletter and sign up for my new course on Maven, which uses some of the techniques we discussed today to help transform you from burned out leader to thought leader. You can sign up for updates and exclusive offers for the course by leaving your details on the form that I'll link to in the show notes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen Kotler. We've all had to acknowledge and understand the role of empathy over the past couple of years. It's just become a part of the conversation, you know, how we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes. But I'm interested why you decided to focus on that, particularly in the Devil's Dictionary. If you look at our current environmental crisis, uh, which is sort of what the book is focused on, the problem at a sort of foundational level, you talk to psychologists about the problem or neuroscientists about the problem, they'll say, well, there's a whole bunch of social stuff. There's a whole bunch of cultural stuff. There's all that, but there's a foundational problem in the brain with how we process information and how we have what's known as ecological awareness, which is the ability to see and perceive and feel for, right? Connected to the natural world. And the short version is really that the brain takes in a tremendous amount of information every second. And consciousness is really a tiny output. So it's like 11 million bits of information flow in through the senses. Now, an equal number or maybe even more come up from internally, but just through our senses every second. It's been calculated by a guy named Marvin Zimmerman um, that we get about 11 million inputs a second. And consciousness is roughly 2,000 outputs at total. But what we can all focus on and give our attention to at any one time um, and this was work originally done by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi in, and it was talked about in his book, Flow, is somewhere around about 180 bits of information a second. And just to like put that in context, one per, us in conversation, each of us produce about 60 bits of information a second if we're talking. So that's like 120 bits. The third mm-hmm. person starts talking and you're trying to pay attention to all three, you've kind of overloaded the system. So that's just how brains work foundationally. Brain is always trying to sift and sort what's important, what's not important. And we live in boxes. We stare at boxes. We stare at boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes. That's what we do Mm -hmm. all day long. The brain thinks, oh shit, box world. That's what's important. Everything else gets filtered out. The natural world, plants, trees, animals, the sky, the air, all of that. The brain starts to deprioritize and filter out based on just kind of natural hardwiring and the information processing. So how do we, this is, this creates uh, what psychologists like to call your sphere of caring, the stuff you're going to give a shit about. Usually Mm. because we're tribal, it's ourselves, our family, maybe a couple other friends. And then the society with keeps us stable and safe. 
right? Like that's sort of as far as it's going to go. If we're going to solve environmental challenges, we have to actually be able to see, perceive, care for, and really interact, understand the natural world. We have to expand our sphere of caring. How do you do that? You have to, empathy is the tool that naturally expands our sphere of caring. And it's very flexible and it's, you know, it's fairly easy to grow um, and expand. Uh, Some of it happens naturally over the course of our lifetime. Some of it happens with repeated access to flow among other altered states of consciousness that are, that are built to expand empathy. Um, Some of it happens as we get older and have children and, you know, things along those lines can do it naturally, but how to quickly move the needle. So we start seeing the natural world to actually tackle the environmental challenges we now face. That's sort of one of the core questions I've been at in Devil's Dictionary. I was at in Last Tango in Cyberspace, which was the prequel to the Devil's Dictionary. I was sort of poked at it, even in my nonfiction book, A Small Furry Prayer that I wrote years and years ago. And actually, I bet I probably touched on it in one of the books I wrote with Peter as well. <laughs> there's a, there's lots of interesting ideas within it but there was one one phrase that jumped out at me or one comment and you talked about the idea that although humans are social animals the things that bind us together also drive us apart so so I was was wondering are you optimistic in general about our capacity to come together to solve big issues or do you think those dynamics pushing us apart actually threaten to have significant consequences on the future of humans but also the planet near-term I'm not pessimistic, but I'm not completely optimistic because we seem to have managed to create a situation where we have to deal with all of these issues at once simultaneously here in 2022. You know what I mean? And so I look at that and I go, wow, that's a lot of mess to try to solve over time, long term, very much so. And one of the things that's very interesting about this, you know, I tend to write my, 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 my science fiction at the, you know, in the years that I'm not writing about like the future of technology with Peter, right? It's one of the things that, like I, I, I do sci-fi research and then after I learn the thing or two, I come back to working with Peter because now I have a sense of what the future is going to look like yeah. and where the technology is and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, where Peter and I are focused on right now, we're writing a fourth book in the in what was supposed to be the Abundance Trilogy. So now we're <laughs> writing the fourth book in the trilogy. And uh, it's literally aimed at the gap in the puzzle, which is exponential cooperation. How do we cooperate mm-hmm. at the scale and speed needed to solve our problems? The technology, like a lot of the stuff Peter and I have been talking about that's here, do we have the technology technological capability to sa- solve most of our grand challenges right here, right now. We abs- we do. We have, you know, some legacy systems, cultural and institutional in place that are difficult to steer around, um, though they probably are going to end up getting leapfrogged by the technology eventually, um, which is usually, which is what's happened on some of yeah. these cases. Um, and there are certain things you can point to where you're just like, education, for example, we can claim whatever we want, but it's sort of been taken over by the technologies, by the way we're distributing it, by people cooperating to make it work. Like things like that, where like the technology enabled the teachers and and once you enable teachers, get the hell out of the way, right? Mm. And it's sort of like plus COVID 
and we got a perfect storm for an educational revolution that is happening sort of with and government can't really like stop it anymore. Yeah. Right. That's happening. Will that start to happen with insurance and healthcare and those that probably um, will it happen in the time frame? I always said with Peter, we both said this. We were looking at these questions. Abundance is about, hey, we have the ability technologically to meet and exceed the basic needs for every man, woman, and child on the planet, right? And to do it sustainably so plants, animals, and ecosystems can also benefit along the way. That's That was the argument we made. We said, it's it, but it's abundance or bust. We either mm-hmm. like figure this out and it's still going to require the largest cooperative effort in history um, or the consequences are probably going to be very severe. And, and in the future, this faster than you think we point at sort of five great migrations, we call them the five great that are unfolding over the next, you know, hundred years, including the climate change migrations. These are disasters. These are mm. like monstrous disasters. What happened in Syria happening across the globe writ large. Um, and, you know, interestingly, this is the year that people got real about climate change. And I can point to a thousand things in the world right now that are making huge differences that I could not point to last year. So on sometimes the news is good. It's really interesting for those of us who've been around like the environmental movement for 30 years. And I've watched all of like we've all gotten our ass kicked for 30 years. This is the year things are actually starting to change. And I don't know if it's Greta you know, shouting in front of, the, you know what I mean? Or like what actually COVID hap- showing mm. us that we could dent climate change a little bit. Um, I'm not sure what happened, but we're seeing change. And the, and the final thing, as far as exponential co- cooperation goes, wherever you come out on the vaccine, like are these good vaccines, bad vaccines? Were they, did we talk about them right? Did we, you know, all those Good questions, good discussions to have. I'm not saying right or wrong there, but what I'm saying is, holy crap, we got four, then 10, then 12 vaccines in a year for mm. less money. I mean, vaccines are $20 billion, 10-year projects and yeah. maybe. And we've got like, that's a miracle of biblical proportions. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we got it distributed pretty much around the world and we did it without war. It's the first yep. time we saw global cooperation at scale without war, and it didn't just come up with one solution, it came up with about 10. Now, you can dislike those solutions, and I'm not saying they're perfect. That would be absurd, but I am saying, wow, that's global cooperation. That's the exact mm-hmm. thing that you asked the question about. Can we do this fast enough to solve these problems? We just did. Hmm. Yeah, I think it was remarkable, the vaccine case for sure. But even education and healthcare, I mean, telehealth, I mean, that, that's been around, all the possibilities have been around for years, but suddenly when the pressure's on, we act, and that's often when innovation comes. So I, I completely agree. It's difficult right now when we're speaking in April 2022 and we see the world, you know, geopolitically, you know, there's big challenges, but you couldn't help but have been inspired and be optimistic when we saw people come together in the right way around COVID. I will also say that this is a really rough statement. And I don't like, so I don't know how to say what I'm about to say in a non, I do not mean this in an inflammatory way whatsoever, because what is going on in the world right now is so beyond like heartbreaking. Um, But it is a really interesting case for why we get need to get off fossil fuels and, you know, get to renewable energy so much faster. It just seems like we have to wait for the crisis. And what 
I think the exponential cooperation question is, what does it take so we don't have to wait for the crisis, right? The way I frame it, just slightly differently, but the way I've been thinking about it is, and this is out of work that I'm doing on for catastrophic, trying to work on catastrophic wildfires here in the American West. Um, if you look at the wildfire space, wildfire is a massive problem, but if you look at the entrepreneurship space around that surrounds it, there's really interesting, amazing, pardon the phrase, there's an explosion wildfire technology, right? Mm. And it's really great. But if you look at like, it's going to take 25 years for this market economy to flourish. And we have, depending on what the experts say, about 10 years before most of the American West is going to burn to the ground. So the question right. is not how do we do this impossible thing? It's how do we do something that would take normally the market economy 25 years in about five years. Essentially, mm. the questions we're starting to ask is how do we perform at a speed or a scale faster than capitalism currently allows? Now, normally, when you want to speed up capitalism, you need a new business model. That's usually what you need. But those are the questions we start to ask because capitalism, for all of its faults and warts, it's just a system for cooperation. How do we share value at scale? Very broken, hasn't worked exactly like we want, but now we need to be able to do that faster so we can solve yeah. the challenges we're up against. And and one requirement in solving that is the cooperation bit, of course. But sort of an innate creativity is going to be required in, to innovate around these solutions. And that's my neat segue into asking you a question about creativity. So I'm really intrigued. You've obviously in this case, this is fiction. You had The Art of Impossible was your last book and you write with Peter. When you think about creativity or maybe fiction in particular, do you consider that as an avenue to express creative ideas or does creativity sit at the heart of all of your work irrespective of the subject matter? Creativity sits at the heart of every single thing I try to do. Um, I think... So this is a personal thing. This is not like, this isn't what the Flow Research Collective, a lot of people who train with the Flow Research Collective seem to share this opinion, but mm. this, in my opinion, is my opinion and applies to me. And if, if it applies to other people, those, those are your decisions. But like, to me, the point, one of the big points of art, of life is life should be art. It's, everything should be a creative decision. And, you know, creative decisions are all about mastery and excellence and, and beauty and, I always try to tell people when you're trying to present yourself and your ideas to the world, there's only three things you have. You have your history, right? You're either famous person or not famous person. You are right. You've either like learned how to run three minute miles and won these awards or you have, you know what I mean? I like nothing. If your history is your history, like mm. it, it is what it is. You can change your future a little bit, but you have your history. And, and that's sort of like, that's the platform you're going to be standing on. Then you have your research everything that you've learned that no, and, and you know that other people don't, right? And it, you should be deep, deep, deep because there's some smart people in this world. And finally, you have your style, your craft, your creative, mm. you know what I mean? Those are the three things. And I think those things go into sort of anything you do. And um, I'm not saying I get it right all the time. And in, in fact, you know, I will say that I have been trying to write novels. My undergraduate, ma I have a master's degree in fiction writing, right? I published a first book. I have two novels in drawers. Last time I was in space, I will tell you that I think the Devil's Dictionary is the first time I got it right. Five books, five novels. <laughs> it's the first time I'm like, yeah, I finally got this one right. Now, are this, does it mean it's perfect? Not at all. Like, are there things mm. 
in other books that I do that I'd like to figure out how to do inside of, but I don't, like I finally figured out, this is how you write pulse pounding, page turning, sort of big idea fiction um, mm. in a way that like heroes of mine, William Gibson, for example, could do it, right? That's, I've been yeah. aiming at a thing for a really long time because the you know the challenge and the the, the challenge as a, as a fiction writer that I'm interested in is how do you convey really big ideas, um, right, and still communicate? You, yeah. That and where's that line and how how hard can you push on it? And you know, back to your question about creativity, that challenge of how do you convey big ideas creatively, right? This is a challenge that it's in every one of my nonfiction books. It's in all my articles. It's in everything I do public speaking wise, everything my company does, the flow research, you know, all of it one way or another is about how do you communicate really big ideas that are, that are, that are interesting. And I believe that, you know, everybody can sort of grasp if you can find the same language. Hmm. So yes, on creativity, yes, it's everywhere. And, you know, it's got, I have macroscopic, it's got macroscopic themes in my life. Like I just mentioned, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and do, you mentioned there then that this is the first time you've felt that you've nailed some of those aspects of fiction writing. Does it come far easier then, or has it come far easier with your nonfiction? I mean, do, do you feel just more comfortable being able to communicate those big, big ideas? Well, some of it. So it's lapse. I was a freelance journalist for 15 years pretty much right and so in writing nonfiction, yes i've written 10 11 books i've also i wrote a blog for five years for forbes i wrote a blog for five years for psychology today i you know what i mean i wrote for a hundred different magazines and newspapers um and i had the advantage of having especially because i came up in the 90s when like you had these some of the most brilliant editors, a lot of them are still working today, but it was just this flourishing of people who had made their mm -hmm. life and living around words. And so I got like the smartest people in the world hammered on my nonfiction <laughs> and they were ruthless and mean and terrible about it, um, which was fantastic um, for a really long time. My fiction was hammered on a little bit in grad school and undergrad when I was learning. And by the way, and we still don't, know how to hammer on fiction very well, right? Teaching fiction is very tricky. And I don't mm. like, as a guy who came out of the best, one of the best fiction programs in the world, eh, you know what I mean? Eh, I don't know. Like it's freaking hard. And like, how do people beat on it? You know what I mean? Like, I, it's not like I publish, I mean, I, I published dozens of short stories along the way. So it's a lap thing and it's mm. a time on the problem. And it's also, I will say, one of the things that nonfiction and having editors, all that stuff does is they force you to do the uncomfortable, hard work shit. And with fiction, the reason the devil's dictionary works so well, and I don't know if this is visible from a reader perspective, but from a writer and my editors, people, people who worked on this book, this is the most technically difficult book I've ever written. Like I'm doing more technical writerly things. It's all buried and you won't notice it but like structural things and like to do that, it, it is so formal. I'll give you a, I'll give you an absolutely hysterically ridiculous example. Okay. <laughs> so I have been asking the question of why do thrillers work? What engages readers and holds their attention? So before I wrote 
Devils, after I wrote Last Tango, which I thought was a very successful book, but not, it was slower paced and it didn't, you know, it didn't do that thing. I did this giant, I think I wrote 150 thrillers by everybody you could possibly imagine. And I looked at what was, what, what did they write about when they weren't writing about action, right? Action scenes have everyone's attention, right? But so, and I started to realize that the only things that actually work in thriller books are scenes that involve primal needs. So you can have sex scenes or flirting scenes. You can Mm -hmm. have eating scenes or drinking scenes. um, Yeah. Right. And you can have scenes that set up the action to come, like the whole Ocean's yeah, yeah. Eleven, like plan the heist thing. Those yeah. are the only acceptable scenes in a thriller besides the action itself. Um, and here's another weird one thing that I learned. If you want to, the difference between a thriller and a novel is if you have to do exposition. In a thriller, you have to do it in dialogue. In a novel, right. yeah, you yeah. do it through the narrator, right? Mm. And if you put exposition, if, if in a thriller, in a sense, if you have more than like a paragraph or two of exposition at the start of the chapter, um, and then everything else has to take place in dialogue, you'll slow the pacing down. So like, these are things that I learned after like doing like sentence by the sentence, you know, meta analysis of 150, I totally (laughs) took it apart. And I, and I just said, okay, let's do all the super formal things and freestyle in between and see if that, and it actually finally, I think worked. It does, it does a little, it, where it's still a little problematic is in, character development it takes a while to flesh out characters right yeah and what you forget about with like a james bond movie or even like a harry bosch detective book right that series is that Mm. you're familiar with the character you don't really know need to know the backstory because it you sort of got a vague version of it in your brain culturally so right so there's advantages there and so when i say like I don't necessarily know if you get to solve all those problems in your second book in a series. Like I think some of those problems get solved by the fact that you were still writing the same character three or four books in Hmm. and there's familiarity. And you know, it's interesting because like imagine Tolkien having to write the two towers, right. And explain what a hobbit is. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So you mentioned your work at the flow research collective. I'm really interested in what you've learned say over the past 10 years, how do you think differently about flow now to how you did 10 years ago? One of the reasons I love the work we were doing in flow is because neurobiology, when you go to the mechanistic level of neurobiology, it doesn't, it gets below personality and culture and all, which is why you can work in 130 countries. Everybody we train, we do exit interviews with. And those interviews are recorded and I get to watch them once every couple of months. Last time I was watching, which was a couple months ago, like there was this Jamaican woman. Uh, I think she had relocated to Brooklyn where she was, was, but she was like really thick Jamaican accent, followed by an Indian woman, a Pakistani doctor, a U.S. senator who's also a Baptist preacher. You know what I like? It was so wildly diverse. So seeing that writ large, Chick sent me high must have had this experience when he ran the original flow study globally mm. and he got to see 
what it looks like when 50,000 people answer flow questions the same way. It's sort yeah. of that experience, but it's writ large because we're, it's more than 50,000 people and it's global at a level mm. of that, like that original flow study, which was great, but it didn't go into 130 countries. So that is something I would have expected, but it's still shocking to see in that, mm. oh my God way. So, but the quicker answers to your questions, it's, if you go back to West of Jesus, the very first time I had a take on this is what I think flow is, this is worth, I, all of it's right. Like I didn't, none of that's changed. Like I was sort of right. The work then was solid and it's remained solid. What is new, I'll give you a simple example. So there's all this work on, a mic, on the microbiome right now. And one of the things we know about the microbiome, it is predominantly foreign bacteria, non-human viruses and bacteria that are living in your gut co cooperatively, symbiotically with us. And we've learned that the microbiome can impact things like emotions and performance and all that stuff. So one of the questions that I said 20 years ago, I, I brought it up and, I, and, and it's, it's gone from like sci-fi question to this is a science fact thing that we actually need to like look at. So that's crazy to me. And what I'm talking about is when we talk about flow as peak human performance, it's most of our systems in our body, heart rate, skin, you know, skin, brain, blah, blah, all working together. The microbiome is involved. If the microbiome mm. is involved in real time, then peak human performance is not actually entirely human. It's a cooperative multi-species effort for peak performance. And we know that like quorum sensing is the fancy quantum word for how does the microbiome communicate at scale. So we, we know this level of communication takes place. We understand how it works. We know all this is real. So now we get to ask questions about flow, like is peak human performance even human? And so that's what's changed is we've gone from these sci-fi philosophical is this like even real question, you know, that we were asking 10, 15 years ago to, oh shit, this is really real and we can actually mm -hmm. get answers. That's changed. Um, the work that uh, the world will start seeing over the next six months, because we're starting to publish a bunch of papers on this, most of the sort of cutting edge of neuroscience right now is at the level of neural dynamics, functional connectivity, network level, brain communication and effects. And that's where, the, that's the cutting edge of flow now. Now, 10 years ago, you, there's probably a dozen places where I said, you know, I think at some point complexity science is going to really give us the best map of flow. 10 years later, and a tremendous amount of great complexity science along the way, that is a real question that we're starting to get real answers to and real sort of functional connectivity measurements around flow. And so like, that's what's changed. It's none of the, mm -hmm. like, what's changed is that we've gotten more and more granular about the stuff that we thought was going to be important. Now we know it's sort of important and we can look at it and start to ask real questions about it. Group flow was an idea, then a book and a couple of studies, then, you know, a field. And now it's, we're starting to get measurements of, okay, maybe these are the markers for group flow, like group brain activity, those kinds of things. That's what's different. Um, and finally, the, you know, I, my, a lot of my work has been, how do we bring this, these ideas 
into the heart of the mainstream. And that's what I've always, you know, my mission has been when I said earlier that like abundance requires the largest cooperative effort in history, it means that means everybody like working together, but at their best working together. And that means flow and group flow. So I've wanted to move this stuff into the heart of the mainstream because I think we need all of us. It takes everyone to solve mm -hmm. some of the problems we're up against and empowering people to do way more, which is, you know, the science makes possible, right? That's the work the Flow Research Collective does. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's not very fancy. Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. So this, I mean, that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to just sort of get the mainstream to do it so we can, you know, go after these grand challenges. And that's changed. The fact that like, it's we're in 130 countries. I'm training up some of the biggest companies in America. You know what I mean? Like it's, that's different. Um, yeah. And, you know, that uh, I love all those things are like, you know, super exciting. You know, it, it means that everybody who's been on the flow mission has been doing a great job for a while. Hmm. Yeah. And one of the, again, one of the phrases which lodged in my mind, I think it's a art of impossible is the idea that personality doesn't scale. Biology does. I might not have got the phrasing exactly right there, but that's it's the, exactly that's right. No, no, you got, yeah. I did what everybody does, right? I learned a little bit about peak human performance in, you know, mm. at some point in my life. And then I started telling my friends how they should live their lives. I got so excited and like, I wanted to spread the gospel. And then I started to realize, I think I knew shit that my friends didn't know. And I started, and the funny thing about it is, for me, when I did that, it was a colossal disaster. A couple of my friends put themselves into the hospital, taking my advice. A couple of friends almost got divorced. For, you know, from you know, like I, I wrecked my friends' lives. <laughs> One of my closest friends um, basically stopped talking to me for five years. Like walked away. It was just like freaking. And it was the greatest blessing for me because, like, mm. it woke me up. I was like, yeah. oh my god, and. I started, but it caught my attention. Like, why was it such a disaster? Like, what the hell, right? Like, I really, like, I just told you that everything I wrote in West of Jesus about flow was right. So what was it about me teaching this to my friends? That And what was wrong was I was trying to get them to do what I did. And I've got crazy, ridiculous risk tolerances. I've been a lifelong action sport athlete. And my friends um, are professionals they're the best in the world at this like my wrist i've broken 85 bones that is not normal wrist tolerances you cannot right and I, like i've also been involved in 27 different startup companies along the way that's a incredible appetite for risk so not everybody has that if i try to take my shit and put it on you if you don't have my appetite for risk and by the way my resilience in the face of defeat you're gonna get destroyed um and if you have, we talked earlier about me being a little bit on the spectrum and missing people. If you're not, and you're hyper empathetic and really aware of people and you take my shit, you're going to get destroyed. And I learned this the hard way. Um, what I don't understand is why other people haven't learned this, you know, which is what sort of blows yeah. my mind is like every coach, this should be a phase, right? Mm. Like they know when they train Freudian psychologists that there is going to be a point of transference, right? The patient is going to fall in love with the therapist for some period of time and, you know, steer around, right? Like this is not, like this is well-known stuff. My point 
was um, the reason it's well known is because personality doesn't scale. It can't. It's too individual. You're different mm. from me. From every, there's not enough similarity um, in that way. But if you get below the squishy level of personality to like how the mechanism works, so in other words, flow triggers. Flow follows focus. All of the triggers drive attention into the now. They drive focus. They have focus. They do it a bunch of different ways, but. And they all work automatically. Like all of them are going to produce dopamine or norepinephrine or lower cognitive load or some. That's what the mechanism is. It's this, the mechanism is the same for all of us. Which triggers you're susceptible to, right? How much risk do you like? How much novelty do you like? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? How much energy did you have this morning? Did you get in a fight with your wife, girlfriend, child, sister, brother, the night before? You know what I mean? Like all that shit mm-hmm. matters to which flow trigger you're going to go after on a daily basis. So if I, you know, in one of these like macho men's groups where they're like, you have to go out and get into a boxing ring and that's good. Well, no, not at all. You really don't. I mean, like maybe, and maybe today, but not tomorrow. And like all that stuff is very nuanced, but does risk produce dopamine in every human being? Mm. Can we use risk to tighten and enhance focus? Yes. Are there different choices in risk, different levels of risk, different ways to take, like, is, you know what I mean? For everybody? Yes, of course. Like, this is just like sort of basic common sense as far as like concerns. So like, yes, I say these things and I, I, they're not, I don't think of them as like whiz bang breakthroughs. I think of them as like, well, this is some common sense, this is safety and security stuff for those people we're trying to, you're trying to like help or work with or, you know, whatever. That's how I sort of think about it. So I'm curious then if you, to scale your coaching or training of people in order to be able to maximize the, the opportunities to bring flow into their life. So those different five different people you mentioned conceptually, because you're not going to go into specifics, but is the training you're giving them identifying, helping them identify to what extent they should incorporate risk in order to trigger flow or is that part of the process they're going to go yes, through? Just of to give people that, a glimpse. Yeah, of course. And that is part of the process. So the other thing is when you go through our training, it's an eight week training, it's digitally delivered, which allows us to work in 130 countries, but you go through it with a PhD psychologist and or neuroscientist as your coach. Um, and you go through it with a, a peer group. So you're like, there's a lot of, um, and a facilitator. So there's a lot of sort of feedback touch points. Yes. Along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, um, in flow, that's really about where do you set the challenge skills balance, right? Those, that's the foundational question you're, you're, you're asking in a risk is one thing. And, but it's, it's really about like the foundation, the challenge skills balance and which is flow's most important trigger. And you know, the idea that we're paying the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set, right? You want to stretch, but not snap. That's a game of risk, curiosity, fear, like all those things. And, Yes, we do that work. Um, where the work we don't do is if you come in with a lot of psychological stuff going on in your life, the goal is solve that stuff first. Because then you've got really, you've got more complicated issues around fear and risk. And you know what I mean? There's other stuff in there and we'll help you identify the fact that like these are issues. That's not what we do. Right. That's not our work. I mean, some of the some of the psychologists who I get to work with are extremely well trained in that, but not that's not like we're not we're not specialists in that. I think there's an entire field 
of psychology, psychology, you know what I mean? There's so much expertise there that some of this is, we all, we outsource that to the experts and we, we try to stay in our lane very much. Mm. Well, a lot of people's first encounter with flow is probably that idea of being in the zone and they sort of automatically think of sports people, or you mentioned extreme action sports. Presumably a lot of people going through zero to dangerous, which is your course, are knowledge workers, if you like, people doing jobs. So I mean, how does it translate? So this is, so yes, the language around flow has been language in the language of sport and art, mm. for sure. Creatives getting into flow. You know, and um, some of that is an artifact uh, and Mihai chicks up Mihai before he passed last October has, has said this a, a bunch of different times. Um, so I'm not, I'm not disparaging the man. I'm telling you what he said. He said a part of that is he came in, he was a rock climber and a mountaineer and he was interested in creativity. And so he saw flow more in artists and athletes. And so mm. when he started talking about it early on, a lot of it was put in that language and those were camps that were early adopters. But here's the craziest thing in the world. The most common flow state in the world is, uh, a, a, so group flow comes in lots of different varieties. There's interpersonal flow, you and me talking, there's group flow, a team, a basketball team or a brainstorming session performing. In space. And then there's communitas, which is like a political rally, a rock concert. Everybody's clapping along in the music and, you know, in sync and that sort of stuff interpersonal flow at work is the most common flow state in the world. Two middle managers having a conversation at work is the most common. Like when two middle managers sit down to have a conversation, it's supposed to be a quickie two minute. Okay, we're going to stop. And they end up talking for an hour and getting so lost in the ideas that they, that's the most common flow state on earth. Mm. And a lot of the jobs that run our coding video games, design, software design, uh, network, all these things, like everything that built Silicon Valley and all these jobs cannot be done without flow architecture. All these are flow based, you know, jobs foundationally. And most jobs, in fact, you know, I always say that like one of the, you know, chicks at me high found flow in assembly line workers and Toyota Kaizen is a flow based management philosophy you know, and it works for people working on the assembly line. My point is like, if you can get flow on an assembly line, which is really well established in the data, like you can get flow anywhere. And like, certainly we can talk about, we can use the sports and arts metaphor because it's handy, but it's limiting. It's very, very limiting. And mm -hmm. it's not, I don't actually think it's accurate um, right. at all. I, you know, I don't, and, based on like simple biology flow is how we perform our best. So if you're top 25, 30% in your field, chances are you're really great at flow. Otherwise you would have never gotten to the top 30% of your field, let alone the top mm. 10%, 5%, 1%. Like flow is how humans are hardwired for peak human performance. Sir, as I pointed out in Art Possible, there's way more stuff going on right? Categories of other things in the mix, but it doesn't change the fact that flow is, we're all human. We're all biologically hardwired for this state. This is the state of optimal performance. So if you have somebody who is optimal anywhere on the map, by definition, they're good at flow. 
Mm. And then just one follow-up question from that. So you talked about the example there, two middle managers just sat down talking to each other. Is our ability to find flow diminished by talking through a screen? You know, if that experience of being sat in a room with a group of people and that time disappears, it melts away. Is that different when we're speaking online? Is there any, have you done any research being done about so let me ask you how, a how that affects things? Was this a flowy conversation? Yeah, just 100%, had? Yeah. yeah. Right. You weren't thinking about other stuff. You were caught up in it, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we were mediated through, through Zoom. Um, mm. My point is the technology is often not what's at fault. What is often at fault is what, when you're playing these games was on Zoom, for example, mediated group flow states, you have to work harder. Same flow triggers apply, right? Complete concentration right. Yeah, on yeah. the shared task at hand. But like you don't, you know, you and I know there's a podcast. Okay, we got to show up. We got to pay attention. Other people are going to watch. So there's that extra risk factor that keeps us focused, right? If people treated their Zoom meetings with that same sort of, you know, risk, you know, we're doing it out of respect for each other and respect for the audience, I would guess. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. the problem is it's not the technology. The technology is neutral. It's what we're bringing to it. And, and it's interesting because here's the argument that I'm going to make. And let me just ask, so let me ask you a question. When COVID started during the period of the lockdown, when Zoom was like a blessing, right? When you were like, oh my God, thank you. There's technology with which... I, I'll bet most of the time your conversations, your meetings, your whatever were really flowy because you were thankful for the meeting and you were there and you were like, oh, yeah. but over time we've habituated and we're bringing less of ourselves to the task at hand. And we're mad that the task isn't flowy and we're blaming the technology and okay. But like, if you bring less of yourself, you know, like one thing, simple uh, peak performance thing that we, I talk about in uh, the art of impossible attention and autonomy are coupled systems, right? If you don't feel like you're driving the bus in charge, doing exactly what you want to do, passionate about it, whatever your body will not, you can't maximize focus at all. It's biologically impossible. Thus, once we get habituated to zoom, once it's no longer a blessing that's saving us from the evil of COVID. And now it's just the way we do things because it's less air travel and like, you know what I mean? All that stuff. And what I like try to remind people is I'm like, every time I get to do a zoom meeting or a zoom interview or a zoom anything five years ago, I had to get a goddamn airplane and lose three yeah. days to have that freaking conversation. Mm. And you know what I mean? Like that yeah. was massively inefficient. And like the minute I hang up with you, I'm going skiing. So you know what I mean? Like I, that didn't happen five years yeah. ago and couldn't happen. So I just try to remember what I'm grateful for and try to like bring that energy. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I fucked up like everybody else, but, um, I try not to take it for granted and I try to like, you know, meet the medium with, with extra energy because, you know, for all those, all those reasons. But so I don't think it's a technology that's just, that's robbing, you know, us. it's what we bring to it also. Great point. Great point. Well, look, the mountains are calling and I don't want to keep you away for too long. Mate. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Stephen. Have a great day, Ali. 
And that was my conversation with Stephen. Some fascinating insights in there. If you want to learn more about Flow, then check out the Flow Research Collective website. And Stephen's most recent non-fiction book, The Art of Impossible, is a great read. So next week, I've got another incredible writer of a slightly different type. Justin Welsh is one of LinkedIn and now Twitter's biggest creators, with over a quarter of a million people following his work every day. After quitting his job in tech in 2019, he's been on a mission to develop a portfolio of one-person businesses and help other solopreneurs do the same. So if that sounds interesting to you, make sure you tune in again next week. Until then, have a good one.